to Eclectic Intellection once again. Uh, today we are going to talk about the legacy of Al-Andalus or medieval Muslim Iberia and Spanish colonialism in Morocco. More broadly, this will be a conversation that focuses on discourses that are used to legitimize imperial rule. But it's also a conversation about how ideas travel from one context to another. My guest is Eric Calderwood, who is an associate professor in comparative literature at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. What follows is an edited version of a longer conversation I had with Professor Calderwood uh, through Skype. Uh, much of the conversation will revolve around his recent book, which is titled Colonial Al-Andalus, Spain and the Making of Modern Moroccan Culture. The book was published by Harvard University Press in 2018. Now, before we begin the discussion, I'd like to read a quote uh, from pages 24-25. Like the Mediterranean, Al-Andalus is a malleable site of meaning, one that shifts and adapts to different cultural and political needs. My goal in this book will be to trace those shifts and to show how a certain set of ideas about Al-Andalus serve to justify Spain's colonization of Morocco and then, surprisingly, to define the Moroccan national culture that supplanted colonial rule. For the writers and politicians at the heart of this study, Al-Andalus functions as both history and poetry. That is, Al-Andalus is both a specific time and place and also an idea that transcends time and place. Al-Andalus expands and contracts. It is a living present grounded in a lost past. It resides in the Iberian Peninsula, in North Africa, and in the space in between. It is a specific chapter in medieval Mediterranean history, and it is a universal heritage that bridges seemingly irreconcilable divisions between East and West. So, Eric uh, Calderwood, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, there's a lot to discuss uh, in this quote. Um, but before we jump into the discussion, could you tell us uh, more about your academic background and how you initially decided to write about the colonial Al-Andalus? Sure. Well, first of all, I uh, just want to thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk about the book. How did I get to the book? Well, it's a book that has at least two different origin stories. Um, one of them somewhat personal and the other more scholarly. Both of them pretty germane to how I came to the project. So I'm going to talk about them both briefly to give you a sense of how I came both to this project and more broadly to this field of study. The first point of origin is one that doesn't really show up explicitly in the book and yet is always in the background of how I think about and experience my own relationship to El Andalus. And that has to do with the decision I made when I was a senior in high school to take some time off after high school and to go to Spain to study flamenco. At the time, I was a high school senior, feeling a little bit lost, a little bit of teenage angst, existential ennui. 
And uh, right at that time, I happened to enter uh, this kind of grant fellowship competition that was sponsored by the Spanish consulate. And through that, I was able to get some money to do this project in Spain, which involved me going to study flamenco. Now, I did have some background in dance, but I had no background in flamenco. And really, my only uh, claim to the flamenco world was that my brother uh, was dating at the time a very accomplished flamenco dancer. And she, certainly out of great love to my brother, uh, decided to reach out to her former mentors in Seville and see if she could get me into a flamenco studio. So I ended up moving, uh, recently graduated from high school, uh, right after my 19th birthday, to Spain in order to study flamenco. And this was a really uh, eye-opening experience for me. It was actually my first time being in Spain. And it was also traveling to southern Spain and, and to Seville in particular. It was really my first exposure to Spain's Muslim past, which is really everywhere you look if you go if you go to southern Spain. At the time, I was quite poor. Uh, I didn't have a lot of money to do things other than to go to my flamenco classes and walk around town. Uh, and so I ended up spending a lot of time in Seville's Alcazar, which is a palace complex that dates back to the 11th century, though it's undergone a number of transformations since then. And so I had this experience where I was spending all of my afternoons in this building that, to my eyes at least, I thought was connecting to me to this kind of distant Muslim past, though I've later come to learn that actually there are a lot of stages of intervention in between the building and that, that medieval past. And I was also learning this music that famously uh, many Spaniards and, and, and indeed musicians all throughout the Mediterranean claim is in one way or another descended from the long Muslim presence in the Iberian Peninsula. So this kind of kindled my interest in this whole period of history that was really uh, not in my high school curriculum, that was really unfamiliar to me, and really kind of how I came to the study of El Andalus. And though I, I no longer dance flamenco, a lot of, uh, you might have noticed that there is a, a, a bit of stuff about flamenco in the book, and, and more broadly, some of the questions that I started to ask myself at that moment when I was 19, what are these buildings, what is this music, what is, the, what is their meaning now, where do they come from, how do we understand that past, what is its relationship to the present, those are all ideas that I've taken with me forward, uh, and questions that have continued to kind of shape me as a, as a scholar and the work I did for this book. So that's the kind of first backstory. Fast forward to the the, the next origin story, which is a bit more scholarly and has to do with how I started to do uh, research in Morocco. So as I said, uh, this experience as a teenager kind of kindled my interest in the study of Al-Andalus, led me uh, eventually to study Arabic. And, you know, there's a kind of a lot of long, there's many intermediate steps in between. But the upshot is that when I was a graduate student at Harvard, I embarked on this dissertation project that was about Al-Andalus. And in particular, it was about legal debates about ethnic and religious minorities in 15th century Iberia and North Africa. It was about how Muslims, Christians, and to a lesser extent Jews came to understand their relationship through a variety of different legal instruments and, and legal traditions. When I use the word Al-Andalus, I am in fact using the Arabic term that refers to those parts of the Iberian Peninsula today's Spain and, and Portugal, that were ruled by Muslims in the medieval period. From 711, which is the year that Tariq ibn Ziyad led an army, led the Muslim conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, until 1492, which is 
the year of the Christian conquest of Granada. And we could even extend that history uh, up at least until 1614, which is the year in which the Moriscos, which were the kind of last descendants of Muslims or crypto-Muslims uh, in Spain, were expelled, and many of them went to North Africa. So I, with the support of a Fulbright grant, I, a Fulbright-Hayes grant, I went to Morocco to start working on that project. This is in 2007. And, you know, 10 years later or 11 years later, I ended up publishing a book that was not at all about that, that was not about medieval Al-Andalus, but was instead about modern relations between Spain and Morocco, and in particular about the political uses of Al-Andalus in modern Spanish and Moroccan culture. So, in other words, at some point I made the jump from Al-Andalus proper to the afterlife of Al-Andalus, and from the medieval to the modern. And it was really being in Morocco that made that happen. Because during, uh, and, uh, you know, I know that you've also, David, spent a, a lot of time in Morocco, and in particular in Tetuan, so I believe you'll know what I'm talking about. During that first year in Morocco, I started to encounter this idea that seemed to be everywhere around me. It was in the books I was reading, in conversations I was having with people, in tourist sites I was visiting. And that idea was basically like many aspects of Moroccan culture descend from Al-Andalus. This style of music comes from Al-Andalus. This way of building a house, this way of making a tile, this way of practicing Islam. I was surrounded by people and texts that were making this assertion of a direct connection to Al-Andalus. And often that assertion was uh, attached to a kind of larger story that a lot of the Moroccans, uh, both scholars and just people I was meeting, had in their minds, which was that these various cultural forms and artifacts were things that had migrated to Morocco with the waves of refugees from Al-Andalus at the end of the 15th century and into the 17th century. So, in other words, there was this kind of historical story behind them, that with the fall of Al-Andalus, it's not that Andalusi civilization ended, rather it migrated from the Iberian Peninsula to North Africa, where where it has continued to survive until the present day. So as, as I started to hear this, as I started to get these kind of a lot of different signs around me uh, uh, suggesting that there was a continuity between medieval Al-Andalus and contemporary Morocco, I started to ask myself, when exactly did Moroccans start to talk about Al-Andalus in this way? When did they start to claim this Andalusi heritage? Was I witnessing a kind of uh, long-standing chain of memory that goes all the way back into the 15th century? Or was I instead witnessing a much more recent practice, a much more recent phenomenon of memory? That was the sort of question that I had going into this project. How and when and why do Moroccans claim that various aspects of their culture come from Al-Andalus. Where does that idea come from? Has it changed over time? What does it mean? And what kinds of political projects has that claim served? So it was in that process of going to Morocco and studying Al-Andalus that I came to this very different project, which is studying how people talk about Al-Andalus now or rather in the context of the book in the 19th and 20th century. How did Spaniards and Moroccans talk about Al-Andalus and use it as a way of debating and understanding the modern colonial encounter between Spain and Morocco? Could you maybe tell me about what you see uh, as being at stake here? What is at stake in a discussion about colonial Al-Andalus? Sure. Well, I think that the book that I ended up writing 
challenges some some pretty common assumptions about Spain, Morocco, and their relationship to the medieval past. Um, and I think perhaps later when we talk a little bit about how I would situate the book within the existing literature, I can talk some more about those assumptions. That's a little bit more insider baseball, kind of what sort of scholarly questions am I responding to? In terms of the broader stakes beyond the specific scholarly literature in which I was intervening, this is, you know, this is a book that is part of a, a long-standing debate about how to, what are effective methods and modes of studying Europe and North Africa, um, the Christian and the Muslim worlds. What are effective ways of, of studying that? What are meaningful historical models? How do we understand the relationship between current debates and past debates? And so I see this book as intervening in that kind of larger terrain. And, you know, where I would situate it in that genealogy is I think that in the, in the kind of post 9-11 moment, and I'm thinking particularly of books about Al-Andalus, like the one by Maria Rosa Menocal, but, the, but there are other examples. I think that there was an effort to use Al-Andalus as a model for thinking outside of the East-West binary and outside of the idea that there was a permanent and necessary, inevitable uh, conflict between East and West, Europe and Islam. And in fact, you know, one of the great insights of Menokal, and I, I just kind of highlight her book because it's probably the best known, but there are many other books working in this direction, is to show that a lot of the ideas that we have that are kind of foundational to our understanding of the West are were actually uh, very much the products of significant interventions by Muslims, past and present. And so, you know, a classic example would be something like if we think of part of the idea of the West being rested on certain the cultural heritage of ancient Greece, well, a lot of that cultural heritage was, in fact, transmitted to us by uh, major Muslim scholars of the medieval period, particularly those working in Al-Andalus, such as Ibn Rushd, who famously helped to reintroduce Aristotle to Europe through his commentaries. So that would be that. That's the kind of generation previous to mine, and that's kind of the generation I came up in. The generation in which Al Andalus is not only this interesting uh, historical uh, uh, place to study, but it's also kind of transcends that and becomes a sort of model or symbol of thinking outside of the East-West binary. Now. Ultimately, I would say that ethically, I'm totally on board with that project. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not advocating to a return to a kind of atavistic and necessary uh, binary opposition between East and West. What I am saying in the book is that a lot of us who grew up in that intellectual tradition, ones, uh, those of us who are trying to study Al-Andalus as a kind of metaphorical way of getting out of a particular moment of East-West conflict, particularly as it emerged in the U.S. after 9-11, we also were committing a bunch of pretty uh, kind of ahistorical jumps and were kind of conflating the history of Al-Andalus with the various meanings and uses that Al-Andalus has accrued in modern times. So what's at stake in this discussion is to think through, is there is there a way to meaningfully challenge some of the kind of common wisdom of Al-Andalus without 
falling back onto a kind of older paradigm in which we assume that there is a, just a kind of a natural and necessary conflict between Spain and Morocco and more broadly between Europe and North Africa, the kind of two sides of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And so it's this project that's kind of like both trying to think through models of exchange and also trying to think through the various and sometimes surprising and sometimes unfortunate political projects that have been done in the name of those models of, ex- of exchange. Something, right. uh, something, something, you know, for, for the, you know, those of your listeners who are familiar with debates about Al-Andalus, very often they go hand in hand with the assumption that to celebrate Al-Andalus, particularly in the Spanish context, is to celebrate a pluralistic value, a pluralistic notion of Spanishness, one that um, allows for and indeed supports and celebrates various kinds of cultural, religious, and linguistic difference. The problem is that 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 very idea, that idea that uh, that Spain has a kind of is a special has a special relationship to Islam because it was a spot of cultural blending between a variety of languages between a variety of Muslims, Christians, and Jews, so different cultural groups. That partic- that exact set of ideas was, in fact, one of the main justifications for, for Spain's colonization of Morocco. Through studying this case study of Spanish colonialism in Morocco, we get very quickly to this tricky ethical ground where we see ideas that we think we agree with being used in the service of projects that we're very nervous about, like fascism and colonialism. So I just wanted to ask you also about how you how you would situate this book within the debate uh, about Al-Andalus. Uh, you have on the one hand, uh, you mentioned uh, Maria Rosa Menocal, who wrote The Ornament of the World, how Muslims, Jews, and Christians created a culture of tolerance in medieval Spain. Um, And I I think uh, some people have criticized this book as being sort of, um, let's see, how shall I summarize, maybe a a little bit too romantic, right? That that it sort of romanticizes uh, uh, this and and overemphasizes the idea of coexistence and peace, right? People question that and they they want to emphasize more the the wars and the conflicts and the tensions, right? And on that front, um, I'm not sure if you've read this book, but uh, in Spain, um, there's a scholar. His name is uh, Serafin Fanjul. Yes. Uh, he wrote a book uh, called La Quimera de Al Andalus, mm-hmm. um, in which he, I mean, he completely rejects this. So, so if those two approaches are polar opposites of each other, um, so how how would you sit, situate your your book? Because in in my reading of your book, I didn't really, I didn't necessarily read it as an endorsement of. Uh, that sort of idea of convivencia, uh, you're doing something different, I think. So, so how how would you situate it? So, first of all, let me just say something about what the argument is, and then I can say something about how that argument might differ, uh, or how I would situate it within those two poles that you were just describing. If on one hand we have a kind of menocal school of studying Andalus, which is one that emphasizes coexistence and tolerance. And then uh, on the other hand, you might have a Fanjul school, and there's a whole other line of intellectuals that go with that school that reject that vision and instead want to emphasize conflict, uh, conflict interreligious and otherwise that happened in medieval Liberia. Where would I situate my own argument? So first of all, uh, the argument that I make in my book, I should say, is not actually an argument about Al-Andalus. 
And in fact, it, 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 it's about what, the, what is the cultural and political work that the memory of Al-Andalus is doing today. And so I would say uh, one way in which my book is very significantly different from uh, Menachal and Fanhul and many others is that I'm trying to make the argument that many of the things that we think we, many of the times that we think we're arguing about Al-Andalus, we're actually arguing about something different. In this case, uh, I'm trying to talk about the ways in which Al-Andalus as an idea, as a form of memory, as a shared cultural heritage, how that was used to understand and debate a much more recent phenomenon, which is the colonial encounter between Spain and Morocco in the 19th and 20th centuries. So for your listeners who, you know, I mean, Spanish colonialism in Morocco uh, was, was something I came to very late in my studies, and I'm someone who specializes in this area. So I imagine you have many listeners who didn't even know Spain had a colony in Morocco. Uh, so just very, very, very briefly, I'll say uh, Spanish colonialism uh, starts more or less in the middle of the 19th century, and in particular with a war that's known in Spanish as the War of Africa and in Arabic as the War of Tetuan. That takes place in 1859 to 1860. And as a result of that war, Spain's, uh, Spain's army occupies the northern Moroccan city of Tetuan for two years, from 1860 to 1862. And my the dissertation I actually ended up writing in graduate school was on that war. It was about how did Spanish and Moroccan writers understand the origins of Spanish colonialism in Morocco, the origins and significance? Did they see it as, as a kind of continuation of a long-standing pattern of conflicts going back to Al-Andalus, what were the kind of historical frameworks that they used to understand that initial colonial contact between Spain and Morocco in the 19th century? Spain, you know, though there are a kind of a lot of a lot of things that happen in between, but Spain remains roughly as a colonial presence in Morocco at least through 1956, uh, which is the year of Moroccan independence into the 1970s, if you include the Spanish presence in the Western Sahara, the Spanish Sahara. Mm -hmm. So the, the question that I was trying to ask in the book is, when you go to Morocco and someone tells you, this tile work, this pattern, this way of playing music comes from Al-Andalus, where, do where does that claim come from? When did people start making that claim? Is it in fact, as some would suggest, a kind of continuous ch transmission of memory that goes back to refugees who arrived in Morocco from Al-Andalus in the 15th and 16th century? Or is it, in fact, something more recent? And what I'm arguing in the book is that the Moroccan claim to an Andalusi identity is not, in fact, a medieval legacy, but is instead a modern phenomenon that emerged from this colonial encounter between Spain and Morocco in the 19th and 20th centuries. In other words, put more simply, the ways in which Moroccans talk about and understand and write about their relationship to the Andalusi heritage is much less a product of, of a medieval legacy than it is a product of much more recent interactions between Spain and Morocco in the 19th and 20th centuries. Mm. And, and so um, I'm, I'm, I would say that I am... Um, a little bit outside of the circuit of the of the two poles that you described in the sense that both of them claim to be making arguments about 
how Al-Andalus really was. Was medieval Iberia really a place where Muslims and Christians got along peacefully, or was it, in fact, a place of uh, interfaith and intercultural conflict? And I, instead, am kind of taking a step back from that and saying, well, I'm I'm less interested in trying to make a claim, like a kind of solid assertion about what the social reality of life was like in, in the Iberian Peninsula, and more interested in seeing how ideas about Al-Andalus have shaped political and cultural processes that are much more recent, such as the colonial encounter between Europe and North Africa. Right. So, so you're not really studying the, the medieval period. You're studying, this is the colonial modern Al-Andalus. So colonial Al-Andalus has at least these two characteristics. One is, well, that it's a colonial ideology that draws on that medieval history, but it's, again, rooted in, this is, the idea itself is rooted in the colonial context. And the second uh, trait is that it then became a part of uh, Moroccan nationalism or Moroccan national identity. There's a bit of I guess irony or par- I'm not sure how, how paradox. I'm not sure how to put it. Uh, there's something sort of interesting and, and perhaps slightly confusing going on. How did Spanish colonial thinkers um, sort of uh, um, how did they try to portray this Muslim history as, as something that they could fold into the colonial project? So, so I think uh, this is where you do something that's really interesting and that could perhaps inflect studies of the medieval Al-Andalus itself. You know, in a recent conversation with with Carla Mallet, uh, who studies the, the medieval uh, Mediterranean and early modern and modern Mediterraneans as well, she has this idea of uh, these different cultures and languages not necessarily cohering when they are in contact, right? They don't necessarily always cohere in a kind of harmonious way, but quite often they adhere. So there's mm. a kind of point of contact that happens uh, that doesn't necessarily always produce something harmonious, but you can still tra- see traces of one in the other, right? There's a sense of contact. So so I feel that you're, you're doing something um, similar here, and perhaps that would be a way to get out of that really polarized debate um, over Al-Andalus, right? To, to look at more at how things adhered uh, and to gotta try, sort of get out of... Um, uh, this attempt to to find a kind of overarching coherence, right? Now, uh, it, could we explore this uh, through an example? Um, I, I wanted to ask you about, you have a chapter, uh, chapter three, um, you wrote about uh, Blas Infante, who lived between 1885 and 1936. And he is known as the, the father of the Andalusian uh, fatherland. Padre, uh, Padre de la Patria Andaluza. So he is one of these individuals who developed um, some of these ideas early on. Could you maybe say a few words about him as, as an example of this? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so what the book tries to do, and, and so this is a little bit of a wind-up to talking about Blas Infante, is to show how starting in the 19th century, um, a number of Spanish writers and politicians and artists started to look to Spain's Muslim past not only as a source for understanding the relationship with Morocco, but even as a way of justifying Spain's colonial projects in North Africa. And the logic went a little bit like this. 
we are the rightful colonizers of North Africa. We, we, the Spanish, are the rightful colonizers of North Africa because Morocco is, after all, an extension of our medieval history. And so there is this way in which the Spanish claim to colonial power was not one predicated on difference. So unlike the maybe the civilizing mission discourse in which you're saying, like, we have we, the French, have this civilization with a capital C to bring to the uncivilized peoples. You have this other framework that is one that's predicated actually on similarity, on on a kind of family relationship between Spaniards and Muslims and particularly between Spaniards and, and Moroccans. And so. This is really one of the core ideas of Spanish colonialism, and it's really hard to get your head around if you're if you've kind of grown up on a diet of British and French colonialism, which are which are really in general much more about asserting differences, civilizational differences. The Spanish claim to being a colonial power is predicated on the notion that Spain is uniquely situated to be a colonizer in Morocco precisely because it shares a historical and cultural connection to Morocco. So in the book, I try to trace how Spain, starting in the 19th century, plays this very active role in reviving and promoting not only the Andalusi heritage in general, so the heritage of medieval Andalus, but also specifically the medieval links between North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula, and the idea that the cultural fusion that happened in the Middle Ages uh, has resulted in the kind of modern cultures of, of what is today Morocco. And so the Spanish were really integral in kind of reviving a certain set of ideas about Morocco's Andalusi heritage, celebrating them, and pointing to them as justifications for why Spain was, in some sense, the, the ideal colonizer, if you will, of Morocco. Because unlike the, the French, for example, the Spanish claimed that they were brothers with the Moroccans. Brotherhood is another kind of re re repeating uh, motif uh, or recurring motif or metaphor in Spanish colonial discourse. So Blas Infante, so how does Blas Infante come into this? Blas Infante is a kind of Spanish political... Uh, thinker and writer. He's sort of a, a polymath. He learned Arabic. He traveled to Morocco. And he's best known today for being someone who put in motion an ideological and cultural program that is known in Spanish as Andalusismo. Andalusianism, or it's often translated as Andalusian nationalism. Because at a moment in which a number of different peripheral identities were emerging in Spain, so at a number in which people were starting to think beyond a unitary Spanish framework and were trying to assert uh, Basque nationalism and Catalan nationalism, Andalusian nationalism was one of the variants of those kind of peripheral nationalisms in Spain, albeit it's one that's lesser known, certainly outside of Spain. And Blas Infante, his, his kind of argument was that Andalusia, the southern region of Spain, is the direct inheritor of the, of the legacy of Al-Andalus, medieval Muslim Iberia, and is also situated or should be situated as the bridge between Europe and Africa, Spain and Morocco. So Blas Infante did this thing where he wanted to claim a regional or national identity. Sometimes it was framed as regionalism, sometimes it was nationalism. Both of those terms have their own histories in Spain, and I can return to that if you're interested. But he wanted to claim a regional identity, an Andalusian identity, one that was predicated on celebrating and reviving Andalusia's 
multicultural heritage. He didn't use that word multicultural, but like the 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 kind of unique contributions of uh, Muslims and Jews that Muslims and Jews had made uh, to Al-Andalus in the medieval period and the ways in which uh, they had left a cultural legacy that both made Andalusia distinct from other parts of Spain. And he was particularly interested in the difference between uh, Andalusia and Catalonia. He was very critical of Catalan nationalism and made Andalusia similar to the cultures of the Mediterranean basin and particularly um, a North African culture. And so Blas Infante, who today, you know, in, in the post-Franco Spain, so after the Franco regime in the modern era, has been reclaimed as this sort of foundational figure in, in uh, promoting a certain idea of cultural heritage and cultural identity that's predicated not on eschewing Spain's interfaith and multicultural past, but in fact highlighting and celebrating them, he has kind of become um, certainly a kind of revered figure in contemporary Andalusia today in, in southern region of Spain, but also more broadly is kind of known as this guy who helped to uh, spearhead uh, a contemporary or modern reconciliation between uh, Spanish culture, ideas about Spanish culture and identity, and ideas about the kind of Spain's Muslim past. Basically, the point that I make in the chapter that you're asking about is a lot of the things that make Blas Infante's ideas appealing today, his interest in Al-Andalus, his celebration of cultural uh, fusion, his particular investment in, in promoting the idea that Muslims had made significant contributions to Spain, all of those things that we think of as kind of having this very positive ethical and political valence actually have a pretty messy genealogy because even though Blas Infante himself was a martyr of Francoism. He was, in fact, killed by Francoist forces at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. Many of his ideas had an afterlife as central pillars of Francoist ideology in Morocco. Some of Blas Infante's colleagues and kind of disciples in the Andalusista or the Andalusian nationalist movement went on to become some of the architects of Spanish colonialism under Franco. So you have this weird phenomenon where Ideas that we associate with a kind of mode of resistance of celebrating a cultural heritage of difference and, and a kind of pluralism was, in fact, turned into the service of fascism and colonialism after Blas Infante's death. This is step one in, you know, I think what you're asking about, which is the kind of motif of strange bedfellows. You have these ideas that were put forward by this famous Republican intellectual associated with a kind of reclaiming Spain's Muslim past that nonetheless went on to become integral to the project under the Franco regime of supporting Spanish colonialism in Morocco. And then the next turn of the screw, the next great kind of confusion or ambiguity that the book tries to trace through is that many of these ideas of Andalusismo, the recuperation of a certain set of ideas about Andalus, were also uh, taken up by Moroccan intellectuals, many of whom came up through the Spanish colonial institutions and went on to play prominent roles in post-independence Morocco. The trajectory that the book is trying to tell is one in which a certain set of ideas about Andalus, which were initially revived in the service of Spanish colonialism, first migrated from a kind of liberal milieu to a fascist milieu in Spain, and then surprisingly jumped over cultural lines and migrated from a Spanish fascist milieu to a Moroccan nationalist milieu to the point 
that at the, by the middle of the 20th century, many Moroccans are repeating and echoing ideas about Al-Andalus that have this, this kind of Spanish colonial genealogy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see Blas Infante as kind of representative of the ideological paradoxes or, or tensions that are inherent in this story of how Al-Andalus has been used in Spain and Morocco in, the, in modern times. So, so Infante uh, would have felt much more comfortable in Tetuan than he would in Barcelona, for instance. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, so Infante imagined national communities, you know, by definition have to be both inclusive and exclusive. They have to include people beyond yourself and exclude certain people within the community. And very much the kind of counterpoint to Andalusian identity, the, the thing that Blas Infante held up as the opposite of Andalusian identity was, in fact, Catalan identity. His argument was that when, you know, I, I don't know if you've been to Barcelona, but like one, one of the things that you often hear is, you know, Barcelona is the most European of Spanish cities or Bar- Barcelona is more similar to France than to some than it is to Andalusia. And Blas Infante's argument was that Catalans and Catalan nationalism had purchased their European identity at the expense of Spain's Muslim heritage and that they had had purchased their kind of their Europeanness by not only turning their backs to, but sometimes actively denigrating the contributions that Muslims had made to Iberian history. And so he ultimately uh, kind of criticized uh, and rejected Catalan nationalism as a, a sort of racist, exclusionary form of nationalism. And he held up Andalusian nationalism as uh, not only the opposite of that, as a kind of inclusive, you know, he famously said, in Andalusia, there are no foreigners, a kind of nationalism that is open to all, uh, which is a paradox in its, in its own right. But also he was trying to make the claim that Spain, in trying to figure out what direction to take in its ideological and cultural projects in North Africa, should not follow the lead of Catalans that would lead them lead Spain to try to be more like France. Instead, Spain should turn, turn to and embrace what makes it different from France, namely its medieval Muslim heritage. I wanted to spend a few moments on on this idea of colonial al-Andalus as a kind of discourse expanding and contracting. We have a a set of symbols that, again, travel in amazing ways. So you have this Republican, right, uh, Blas Infante, uh, who is killed by fascists, right? But then the fascists sort of recover his ideas and fold them into the colonial Project. So this idea goes again from a Republican to to fascists, um, and then from fascists to the colonial, so colonialists. But then it's also <laughs> recovered by anti-colonialists and national Moroccan nationalists. So it's quite interesting that you can have a discourse that is embraced by Republicans, fascists, fascists, colonialists. Um, anti-colonialist thinkers and national, you know, uh, indigenous local nationalists at the same time, to some, almost, or or if not at the same time, you know, very very close to one another. Could you say I mean, a few words about sort of what, what is sort of the thing that is traveling? Does it change? Like, what is there? Is there some kind of a core here that is preserved as this concept is expanding and contracting? Yeah. So first of all, you know, in terms of your general framing of the question, I I said to another colleague when I was talking about the book that, uh, you know, another title I could have used for the book is Strange Bedfellows. 
because it's really it really is a book that tries to tell a story of people and ideas that you don't think going together going together, be it Republicans and fascists, Spaniards and Moroccans, Muslims and Christians, colonizers and anti-colonial resistance fighters. It's a, it's a very, it's very much trying to tell the story of how a certain set of ideas brought all these various actors together, even though their political ends were very different from each other. Uh, and so the book is trying to contend with that, that paradox. And in some sense, it's trying to come up with a mode of thinking about that paradox that doesn't explain it away or resolve it, but tries to leave it on the table so that we can kind of dwell in the extreme, if not ambiguity, we might say plasticity of ideas about Al-Andalus in the modern period. So, Coming back kind of more more directly to your question, I use the phrase colonial al-Andalus to describe a discourse in the Foucauldian sense, uh, a discourse that, like many Foucauldian discourses, became instantiated and practiced and perpetuated through a number of institutions, both Spanish and Morocco, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries and into the 21st century. What is this discourse? Well, it's a certain it's a certain story about what El Andalus is, what it means today, what Andalusi culture looks like. And, uh, and in particular, it's a story that emphasizes the migration of the peoples and culture of El Andalus from the Iberian Peninsula to Morocco in the 15th and 16th century and the survival of that cultural heritage until the present day. And so there's a kind of historical narrative of transmission attached to it that the peoples and cultures of Al-Andalus left Al-Andalus at the end of the 15th century and into the 16th century and brought with them their culture to what is today Morocco, where it still survives today. So that historical, that story about Al-Andalus and its transmission is present. It's also about a new set of ideas about where Andalusi culture resides, a focus on a certain set of cultural practices in which Al-Andalus supposedly resides. Uh, so in the case of Morocco, this is in particular things like architecture, music, but to a lesser extent also clothing, dialect, cooking. You know, there, there are, you know, in the book I give several examples, particularly in the introduction and then later in the book as well, of various kinds of cultural practices, usually kind of artistic or having to do with cultural refinement, that Moroccans today claim to come from Al-Andalus. And so I guess to summarize, colonial Andalus is a story about how Al-Andalus is a cultural heritage that moves between Spain and Morocco, whose instantiation in the modern period is a repertoire of cultural practices that Moroccans exhibit and have maintained intact since the medieval practice. And those practices include especially things like music and architecture, other forms of cultural refinement. Basically, what I'm trying to say in the book is not, I'm not trying to say that like there is no such thing as Al-Andalus, nor, and this is very important for me to get this caveat out, I'm not denying that there's a long history of significant cultural exchange between the Iberian Peninsula and North Africa. What I'm saying is that the ways in which Moroccans talked about Al-Andalus changed during the modern period and changed very much as a result of the interaction between Spaniards and Moroccans during the colonial period. That during this period, the idea of Al-Andalus went from being predominantly associated with the conflict between Christianity and Islam and the continuity of that conflict from the medieval period to the modern period, and that it was reframed into something else that was both nationalist, 
So it's no longer just pan-Islamic or pan-Arab, but specifically a Moroccan cultural heritage. So it's no longer kind of religious, but it's framed in nationalist terms. And also not framed around conflict, but rather around cultural, a, a repertoire of cultural practices, music, architecture, various forms of design, and so on. What I'm calling colonial al-Andalus is, is that discourse, like how Moroccans came to understand certain ways of doing things in Moroccan today as having an Andalusi legacy and being the result of a migration pattern that started with the fall of Granada in 1492. Yeah, so, so to kind of, uh, to, to really zoom out, what they all agree on is this uh, sense of shared history. But what that shared history means and how it is to be deployed is where they disagree. So uh, the examples that we talked about, uh, again, we go from, uh, you know, Infante's attempt to defend a kind of regional identity. Then we go on, uh, you know, we talked about the colonial project. And now uh, it's more of a sort of a cultural thing in in Morocco, right? It's music and art. Uh, The other thing I wanted to ask you about is something that, that we didn't really talk about very much so far. Um, and I know we're going to run out of time soon, but uh, religion, uh, how religion fits into this. Mm. So, uh, especially in the colonial context. So was religion or religious differences, um, was that seen as um, as a sort of obstacle to this? Did, did they try to somehow fold that into the colonial project as well? Uh, you have a whole chapter on Franco's Hajj. Or was that just not an issue, not something they addressed head on? No, religion very much is something that was addressed head on, but in ways that I think are very, at least were surprising to me, and I think have been surprising to some of the people who have read the book. A variety of different Spanish colonial figures tried to present themselves as allies of Islam and as proponents uh, and kind of friends of the Muslim world. And this tendency was actually most pronounced under the Franco regime, under the kind of fascist regime of, of Francisco Franco, who, for, those of, for the listeners who, who don't know too much about Spanish history, Franco is the person who led the military rebe- rebellion in the Spanish Civil War and eventually came to power as the military dictator of Spain uh, and remained in that position until uh, until his death in the 1970s. So the what I'm what I'm trying to point out in the book is that Franco, who today is remembered as a kind of fierce and partisan proponent of Spain's Catholic identity, and I'm not denying that that was true, that in fact Franco did a lot to bolster Catholic institutions and to bolster uh, Spain's kind of historical identity as a Catholic power. At the same time, while that process was going on, and that's a process that people have studied and have given this name called national Catholicism, the term that people use to describe the alignment of the state and the church in Spain, and particularly under Franco. Despite Franco's famous national Catholicism, he was also at the same time actively engaged in this kind of vast propaganda campaign to present himself um, both to Morocco and to the broader Muslim world as a friend of Islam and also as a, a defender of the legacy of Al-Andalus. And this propaganda campaign went in, in a number of different directions and involved the creation of several different cultural programs, institutions, initiatives. Uh, in terms of religion, the one of the ones that I discuss in the book is what you just alluded to, the fact that from 1937 until the 1950s, 
Franco on and off supported, uh, actively supported, and in a very public and visible way, the Moroccan pilgrimage uh, to Mecca and Medina, the Hajj. And so in that chapter that I call Franco's Hajj, I try to trace the history of how Franco tried to ingratiate himself with various Moroccan cultural elites and particularly kind of religious elites by asserting that there was a trans-historical alliance between Christians and Muslims who were joined as monotheists in the battle against atheism. And so one of the ways in which Franco regime tried to garner Moroccan support in the, in the Spanish Civil War, and uh, it's important to, to, to note that about 80,000 Moroccans fought in Franco's army in the Spanish Civil War, one of the ways in which the Franco regime tried to garner that support was to frame the Spanish Civil War not as a battle just between Republicans and, and Francoists, but rather between uh, monotheists between people uh, of faith and people without faith, the godless in the Francoist idiom. And so uh, Francoism, particularly during the Spanish Civil War, but well after the Spanish Civil War as well, was actively involved in this campaign of promoting Al-Andalus as a historical model for the sort of Christian-Muslim collaboration that Spain was trying to uh, put into practice in its colony in Morocco. So to some degree, at least, Franco tried to portray himself as a kind of Muslim ruler as well. Yes. Yes, he did. During the Spanish Civil War, this co happened to coincide with a period of pretty intense political repression uh, in the French zone in Morocco. So Morocco, so Spain and, and France divided up Morocco into two zones of influence between 1912 and 1956. And dur during the Spanish Civil War, this was a time of a lot of political repression in the French zone. And a lot of uh, Moroccans fled the French zone and settled in the Spanish zone. And in fact, in the book, I talk about the case of uh, a town that was set up for these refugees from the French zone, which was called the village of Hajj Franco. And Hajj is a kind of term of, of veneration to describe someone who's done the pilgrimage to Mecca and, and someone who it's a kind of term of religious veneration. And so there was very much this attempt to associate Franco with uh, with Islam, not just with the, the kind of Islamic heritage of Spain, but promoting kind of is, is Islamic identities in contemporary Morocco. And in fact, you know, there's a lot of indications that that the Franco regime tried to spread the rumor that Franco had converted to Islam, because uh, this is a kind of, there are a lot of different archival hints about Moroccans believing that Franco actually had converted to Islam. I decided not to go too deeply into that aspect in the book, because it was it was difficult to piece together that story. But I mentioned, I mentioned it here as part of a kind of widespread effort uh, by the Franco regime to present itself as not just philo-Islamic, but perhaps openly Islamic. Again, that's more in the realm of, of symbolism. Of course, he did not convert. He was not, of course, of course a, not. a Muslim. Yes. He, was a, he was a Catholic. Right. right. Uh, no, 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 of course. And, and but, right. but the thing, but, you know, but let, let me let me push back on that oh, because, sure. yeah, of course not. But that comment reminds me a little bit of some of the, the pushback I sometimes get about this, this facet of the book because one... One simple way of getting out of this is just saying, well, he didn't mean it. Franco was insincere, which is probably true. I'm not, in some sense, like I'm agnostic about that question. I'm not actually trying to answer the question, what did Franco and his collaborators, what did they sincerely believe? Instead, what I'm trying to say is, what did they say? And what was the afterlife of what they said? 
regardless of what Franco himself believed in his heart of hearts, the fact is that the Franco regime was remarkably successful in positioning itself, particularly in comparison to France, as a defender of Islam and a defender of Morocco's Islamic identity, particularly as it related to the relationship between that Islamic identity and the heritage of Al-Andalus. Franco, you know, whatever whatever he actually believed, and I'm, I'm sure there was tons of hypocrisy involved in these projects, the, the effect on the ground was to really mobilize a lot of Moroccan support for Spanish colonialism. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe another way to put it is that w- what they, w- they were trying to achieve is obtain a kind of Islamic legitimacy. Yes, right. absolutely. And, and, and for that right. reason, when, uh, when luminaries both from Morocco but also from elsewhere uh, in the Muslim world, the King of Saudi Arabia is a f- famous example, uh, when they would visit Spain uh, during the Franco regime, Franco made strategic use of a lot of different Muslim heritage sites in Spain as a way of emphasizing his regime's protection for and admiration for these various sites. And so, for example, there are many Muslim visitors to Spain under the Franco regime who ended up praying in the mosque cathedral of of Cordoba, something that today in the the post-Franco period is actually impossible. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about how you would situate your book uh, within the scholarship what the reaction has been, and if, you, if you've if you changed your mind in any way, maybe due to additional research or new projects you're working on, has, has your perspective changed in any way? Sure. Uh, so let me see if I can take those questions in, in order, and maybe we can kind of uh, break them down into smaller pieces. I'll start off by responding to the question about how I would situate my argument within the existing literature. So as I suggested earlier, I think I think the book is trying to challenge some common assumptions that people have about modern Spanish and Moroccan history, and indeed assumptions that I had going into the project. And so I'm not just trying to ascribe these vaguely to some kind of external source. Like these are, it, it challenges things that I thought I knew about Spain and Morocco. What are those things? Well, to start off with, I think that the book is trying to challenge two ruptures that have structured our understanding of 20th century Spanish and Moroccan history. On the Spanish side, the rupture of the Spanish Civil War, and on the Moroccan side, the rupture of Moroccan independence. In the case of the Spanish Civil War, I think that most of the scholarship on on modern Spain has tended to treat the Civil War as a kind of rupture between two irreconcilable views of Spain. On the one hand, you have the Republicans who advocate for a pluralistic Spain that is tolerant of linguistic and cultural and religious difference. And on the other hand, you have the Francoists who fight for this Catholic, monolingual, and imperial nation. And in this bifurcated view, which is a little bit how it was taught to me, the debate between Américo Castro and others was very much a debate about what Spain is during the the post-Spanish Civil War moment, I was sort of taught to associate the modern celebration of Al-Andalus with the Republican cause and more broadly with liberal and progressive views of Spanish history. In contrast, what I'm trying to argue in the book is that the celebration of Al-Andalus was also at the same time a very significant part of Spanish fascist culture, particularly in Morocco. And I'm trying to show in the book that Spanish writers and politicians of all ideological stripes tended to justify Spain's role as a colonizer in Morocco by celebrating the Andalusi heritage and by highlighting the cultural and historical ties between Spain and Morocco. 
So the assumption that I'm challenging is this idea that the Spanish Civil War marks this kind of total break between two polar opposite views of what Spain is and what the relationship between the idea of Spain and Al-Andalus is. And I'm trying to show that uh, ideas about Al-Andalus remarkably traverse that rupture and that you have these ideas that are continuous between uh, Republican milieus and fascist milieus in how uh, intellectuals on both sides of that ideological divide use Spain's Andalusian heritage as a justification for Spain's colonization of Morocco. On the Moroccan side, uh, as I said, there's also been this tendency to treat independence as a kind of rupture. Now, I I think there's been slight, you know, I want to kind of, you know, obviously say that I'm not the only person uh, who's doing this. But, you know, I think that many historians, particularly Moroccan historians in the early independence period, tended to treat Moroccan independence as a, a total break with the colonial past and as a restoration of Moroccan national unity. And my book is really trying to challenge that idea, this idea that that Moroccan independence is a kind of split from the colonial past and instead is joining the work of a lot of other scholars who are trying to show the ways in which the colonial past has continued to shape and define political and cultural debates in post-independence Morocco. So in the case of both the Spanish Civil War and the case of Moroccan independence, I'm challenging what I think have been kind of dominant ways of periodizing and categorizing Spanish and Moroccan history and showing that lines that we think to be like pretty firm lines in the sand are actually, at least in this case of the uses of Al-Andalus, lines in which people from a variety of different ideological perspectives and cultural perspectives traversed and moved moved back and forth. I would say that in terms of Moroccan studies, um, another kind of thing that I'm trying to do is to geographically what imagine what it would be like to narrate Moroccan history from a northern perspective, so uh, from a perspective based in Tetuan, Tangier, and Ceuta, rather than in Fez, Rabat, and Marrakesh. And this is really part of, you know, more broadly, in at least in the United States, you know, the field of Maghrebi studies, you know, when studying the history of European colonialism in North Africa has meant almost exclusively to study the history of French colonialism in North Africa. And this is by no means, uh, you know, I've learned tremendously from that scholarly tradition. But what I'm trying to say is that by focusing so intently on French colonialism in North Africa, we've come up with a certain idea of what colonialism looked like what its mechanisms were, what its logics and systems of justifications. And a lot of those ideas we have about European colonialism don't hold that well for Spanish colonialism. Spanish colonialism as a kind of ideological and discursive project was very much built in counter-opposition to what the Spanish thought the French were doing. And for that reason, I think that by, by kind of putting the Spanish colonial zone front and center, I'm not only trying to recover people, places, events that haven't gotten a lot of attention in the English language scholarship on North Africa, but I'm also trying to suggest a kind of larger conceptual shift of coming up with new understandings of what colonialism looked like in Morocco, how Moroccans interacted with it, and what the legacies of colonialism are in the post-independence period. And you know, and on that last point, I'm sort of saying that one of the one of the pillars of Moroccan national identity in the post-independence period, namely this idea that Morocco ha- is, a, is a direct descendant of Al-Andalus, is, I'm arguing, 
something that has a colonial genealogy, has a colonial backstory. So I'm, I'm basically I'm saying that it's not just a matter of bringing new information and spaces into focus, though it's also that. It's that by refocusing on these different actors in different places, new ideas about what colonialism and anti-colonial resistance look like and how they resonate today, new ideas emerge. Mm. Uh, now, b- before you move on to the next question, just a just a quick uh, thing here: uh, How prevalent is uh, a deep engagement with Arabic texts uh, in this literature? Because this is something else that you do really well. Oh yeah, think, yeah. Thanks for asking that. I mean, I, I would say. There has been a long and venerable tradition, one in which I was trained and one that remains incredibly important to me, of studying uh, kind of Spanish-Arab cultural relations uh, through studying the texts of Al-Andalus. And so there are a lot of people, you know, there are a lot of people working in the space who know Spanish and Arabic and who are focusing on medieval texts. But I would say that there are extremely few people, certainly at the time I published the book and, and, and even still, that there's some really exciting up-and-coming young scholars, there's been almost no work on the really extensive corpus of Moroccan writings in Arabic about Spanish colonialism, and more broadly, Moroccan writings in Arabic about modern Spanish-Moroccan relations. So in other words, you know, I... I went to Morocco to do research on Al-Andalus in part because it was something I'd been training for years and found interesting, and in part because I just had no idea that this huge corpus of text was out there. Like, no one, no one told me that there was this huge tradition of Moroccans in the 19th and 20th century writing about the Andalusi legacy, writing about the relationship between that legacy and colonialism. These were all things that I discovered by going to Morocco and working there. Right. So, so uh, the book came out about two years ago, right? Um, 2018. Sure. So has your perspective changed in any in any way since then? Let me see if I can address because you asked about how my perspective had changed and and the reception of the of right. the book, and I think I can talk about those two together because they okay. kind of go they kind of go hand in hand. Something that's been really amazing and exciting has been I've had a lot of opportunities to talk about the book. Um, not only here in the in the states, but also in Spain and Morocco. If the book is about how ideas travel across time and space, and how the same set of ideas manifests or means different things or does different cultural work in different contexts, I've sort of lived that that idea in presenting the book in these different cultural contexts, and and that's been incredibly meaningful to me. And so, I don't know so much. I mean, my perspective has changed, which doesn't necessarily say that I would have done things differently in the book, but I do certainly think that I've learned a lot of things through the process of presenting the book. Um, but in terms of my, my current project, the book I'm working on right now is in some ways uh, kind of has branched out from the current project and actually started as part of that same project and over time diverged and kind of became, took on a life of its own. But it's still working in the same conceptual terrain of the cultural afterlife of Al-Andalus. The book is... It's a book that explores contemporary representations of Al-Andalus in Mediterranean culture, and in particular uh, in film, literature, tourism, and music from a broad array of Mediterranean contexts, including Spain, Morocco, but also contexts that didn't make it as fully into the first book, Syria, Egypt, Israel, Palestine, uh, among them. And so that book is also trying to look at questions that I was asking in the first book, but it's taking them both into new contexts, uh, also into new media. And also, I'd say the structure of how I'm approaching the question is a little bit different. In the first book, I was really trying to make a what I would describe, you know, and I use this this phrase with a little bit of reluctance. I'm, I'm, I'm a literature scholar by training, but what I would describe as a historical argument, meaning an argument that's fundamentally about change over time. 
I was trying to make the argument in the first book that the way that Moroccans talked about Al-Andalus changed during the period that, that I was looking at. This second book, I would say, doesn't have the same overarching historical argument, and instead it is organized thematically. So each chapter explores a different cultural or ideological project that has appropriated and used Al-Andalus in contemporary culture. And what the book is trying to do is to kind of come to terms with the extreme cultural and ideological range of Al-Andalus. And in so doing, trying to come up with a mode of thinking about cultural memory that not only accommodates, but kind of actively invites contradiction and multiple perspectives. You know, the book's starting point is, you know, to come back to something we discussed earlier in this conversation, in the U.S., if you know anything about Al-Andalus, it's probably this story about Al-Andalus as, as a place of interfaith tolerance, this kind of convivencia, living together, uh, the symbolism of Al-Andalus as a place where Muslims, Christians, and Jews live together. And while that is indeed one of the you know major ideas that people have about Al-Andalus today, it's not the only, and it might not even be the predominant idea about Al-Andalus that's operative in, in Arab and Muslim-majority contexts. And so the book is trying to say, okay, what's the genealogy of that idea? And what are the ideas that are left out? And what are the other cultural projects that are attached to Al-Andalus? So the book has, for example, uh, two chapters that try to explore the ways in which the memory of Al-Andalus has intersected with debates about ethnic identities. So I have a chapter about Arabs in Al-Andalus, the idea that uh, Al-Andalus is fundamentally an Arab phenomenon. And then I have another chapter on the Berber Al-Andalus, about Berber contributions to Al-Andalus and recent efforts to kind of reevaluate and celebrate North African contributions to Al-Andalus. I have a chapter on feminism, uh, various attempts to imagine Al-Andalus as a space of exceptional achievement or creativity for Arab and Muslim women. What's the history of the, of the claim of this idea that Muslim or Arab women were particularly free uh, in, in Al-Andalus. This is a claim that, that kind of dates back to the late 19th century. I have a chapter on Israel-Palestine in Al-Andalus. What are the ways in which writers from a variety of different political perspectives, mostly from writing from a Palestinian perspective, but also from others, have used Al-Andalus as a model for understanding occupation and conflict in, in Israel-Palestine. So basically, each chapter tries to isolate a different ideological or cultural problem and shows how Al-Andalus has become one of the historical models that people use to talk about that problem. So that's that's the project I'm, I'm working mm -hmm. on right now. So, all right. So I think, uh, you know, in a pretty early and thoughtful review on the piece that came out in Marginalia, which is part of the Los Angeles Review of Books, um, Leslie Harkema, who's a professor at Yale, um, engaged you know, like I gave what I thought was a really thoughtful and, and generous review of the book, um, but I think did indicate that she thought the book, uh, you know, one of one of the areas where she thought it could have been stronger would have been if I could have spent more time talking about visions of Al-Andalus that were operative in Morocco before the uh, the rise of Spanish colonialism. And so, like, you know, if, you, if you're trying to make an argument that there's a new way of talking about something that's emerged, she wanted more evidence about what was there beforehand. That line of critique, though it is something I try to speak to in the early parts of the book, I have a chapter on Al-Andalus in 19th century Morocco. I think that she kind of put her finger on a real methodological problem, which is, and it's one that other people have been responding to in, in a different way, but I think equally valid, which is, I've also gotten the response that I'm using texts 
a textual tradition, because I'm mostly trained to work with text, to respond to questions that are perhaps not best answered in the domain of text, that instead should be answered in the domain of oral traditions, cultural practices, you know, be it music or dance, uh, uh, artistic practices. And so I do think that the fact that I've used the written archive as a kind of stand-in for what Moroccans thought and wrote about Al-Andalus in a different historical period, it, it is true that I haven't I haven't uh, dealt with the other question, which is, okay, if it is indeed true that, that based on published writings, the ways in which Moroccans talk about Al-Andalus is significantly different uh, if you look at the range from the 19th to the 20th century, so throughout the colonial period, what about things that didn't make it into writing and more broadly kind of elude the sphere of elite culture that, that I'm working in? Because this is very much a book about cultural elites in Spain and Morocco trading ideas back and forth about Al-Andalus. Is it not possible that there are memories of Al-Andalus, ways of interacting with the heritage of Al-Andalus, engaging, engaging with being Andalusi that are in Morocco that have nothing to do with the colonial heritage that were there all along and that might not be there in the kind of record that, that I'm talking about? And I, th I think that there's something immensely valuable there. Without trying to uh, minimize that question, I think like another way of saying that is, okay, well, how would you tell this story about Al-Andalus if you had focused on an entirely different archive? And I'm saying, great, I'd love to read a book about that. Someone who worked entirely in oral traditions or someone who worked entirely in tracing the, the histories of tile makers and how they understand the relationship between Moroccan tile work and the tile work in the Alhambra. That's another problem that I explore in the book. And so basically what I'm drawing at is that I think based on the archive that I was working on, which is a kind of really large corpus of texts traded back and forth, largely from cultural and political elites in Morocco and Spain, I was able to trace this history of how these two groups kind of traded back and forth a set of ideas about Al-Andalus and how that set of ideas served at the same time both the colonizers and the people who were fighting colonialism. I certainly didn't mean to suggest that I've exhausted the meanings of Al-Andalus or that I've exhausted Moroccan understandings of Al-Andalus. I think there certainly are um, way, there are there are cultural forces that elude the gravitational pull of the story that I'm talking about. And in some sense, trying to speak to that point that I only present the kind of historical trajectory of this, of this one set of ideas about Al-Andalus. In the second book, I'm actually trying to, rather than make one historical change over to time argument, I'm trying to show some of the pretty broad range of ideological directions modern writings about Al-Andalus take. Yeah, no, that that's great. So and this is a good place um, also, I think, to end. So thank you again uh, for taking the time to talk to us about your book. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. <laughs>